I know a lot of you have had this experience because for those of us who in 2020 were all sent home and we were stuck in a lockdown during the pandemic, we had a lot of time on our hands and I saw an ad for Masterclass and I thought, I want to better myself. I want access to all of these brilliant people who teach you things. With Masterclass, you can learn from the best to become your best. Masterclass is the only streaming platform where you can learn and grow with more than 200 plus of the world's best and smartest. For just under 10 bucks a month, an annual membership with Masterclass gets you unlimited access to every instructor. And I don't care, you can wake up one morning and say, I want to learn about business. And then another where you say, I want to learn how to survive in the wild if I have no water and no fire to make me warm. You can access Masterclass on your phone, on your computer, smart TV, or even in audio mode. And the classes totally make a difference. Don't wait another moment to start your learning journey with Masterclass. Right now, our listeners get an additional 15% off any annual membership at masterclass.com slash Liz. That's 15% off at masterclass.com slash Liz. Masterclass.com slash Liz. You know, the markets have been on a tear. You guys know that probably, right? Because you're watching me every day, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Clayton Countdown. But which investment has jumped 225% this year? And what about jumping 600% since December of three years ago? Bitcoin. Okay, Bitcoin prices have been surging recently. And now when they went unbelievably low, I mean, they went as low as like 3100 bucks in the past couple of years. Now they are near $23,000 a coin, topping all previous peaks. But you know what? If you ask most people, they can't really explain what exactly Bitcoin even is. It's clouded in this shroud of mystery. And to be honest, most of the financial world still doesn't get it. They don't understand. But whether it's Bitcoin or bonds, mortgages or midcaps, credit cards or crypto, we are joined by the man who decided to take the bull by the horns and take the mystery out of all things in finance and the financial world. Tim Chen co-founded Nerd Wallet on a couch, yeah, with just a couple of hundred bucks. And today it is massive. It's got about a half a billion dollar valuation. And I am thrilled to be able to tell you Tim Chen's story because he's here today on Everyone Talks to Liz. Tim, welcome. Thank you, Liz. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. I mean, we depend on you on our show because you have done incredible things. You now are doing surveys that we love to look at because they reveal so much about whether it's the retail investor or the average individual who's looking for a mortgage. I mean, it's amazing to me how this company started. You know, usually it's in the garage. This one's on a couch. Can you explain that? Sure. Um, yeah, NerdWallet started with my sister asking me which credit card she should get. And I said, let me Google that for you. And I thought I'd have an answer for her in 30 seconds. And I didn't. I was kind of frustrated by what I saw. So the simple idea was, um, yeah, just make make things unbiased, transparent, and easy for people when it comes to financial questions. And so the first version of NerdWallet was really a spreadsheet I put together for my sister over the course of a few hours that had all the credit cards from all the big banks on there. 
Um, and yeah, we've been we've been running it with it ever since. Today, we cover just about every financial product category. And back then, you thought, well, shoot, I did all this work. It'd be a shame not to try and squeeze something out of it. You well, you just put it on the web. What happened? Where did the name Nerd Wallet come from? It's brilliant. Right. Yeah. So. Well, first I forwarded the spreadsheet to some friends and they said, hey, this is helpful. And um, I also put it on the web. Um, the, the name NerdWallet really came from that first Google search. I, you know, I thought there should be something more quantitative and helpful um, that, that could help people make decisions. And by the way, the domain wasn't taken, so it only cost 10 bucks, which matters a lot when you're starting a company. Oh, Yeah. Oh, yeah. Believe me. As somebody who started an LLC and found out the name I wanted, which was Red Blizzard, was taken. I mean, I got it eventually, but annoying. And and they want to charge you for it because they've all snapped up domain names. But where did this entrepreneurial bug start? Can you go back to your, your childhood? I understand you were selling magic cards to your friends in school. That's right. Yeah. Um yeah, I, I guess I've always had the entrepreneurial bug. I, I see opportunity everywhere. It's a blessing and a curse. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I started off kind of getting lunch money from my parents and then not eating lunch and saving it and, you know, buying magic cards in bulk and reselling it. So um, I, I think that was just, uh, yeah, it seemed very natural at the time and I like a lot of fun and you get the thrill of, uh, you know, finding opportunity and making something of it. Yeah. I mean, Warren Buffett talks about how he would buy a six pack of Coca-Cola from his grandfather's little corner store. And then he would sell it for a nickel above. And then he'd turn around, he'd look at his profit and he'd say, I got to keep going with this. I mean, there's, there's a little bit of little scammer in, in all real <laughs> entrepreneurs, I think, but um, you know, so you grew up in Atlanta, correct? Yeah, that's right. Uh, formative years were there. Um, I mean, in, in hindsight, every place you grow up seems very normal. It's just the way things are. Um, but, you know, leaving Atlanta for California made me realize how unique both places are. Well, I'm a California kid. I, I think California is amazing. Everybody wants to hate it. They all want to say how horrible it is. And now you hear people leaving. Meantime, you went back there to the Bay Area recently. Yeah, I did. Um you know, it's, it's a great place to start a business. We're scaling up quickly. We've got, you know, hundred million plus people coming to the site. Um, uh, every year we've got 600 plus employees. So you got to go where the talent is, uh, and, you know, build, build from there. Yeah. I think the amazing thing about the talent here is they've all worked in different analogous industries. And when you hire them, you're not just hiring the person you're hiring all their past experience. And boy, that's a huge advantage when you're mixing and matching so many different sets of experiences together. Absolutely. And and as you started to grow the company, you broadened the aperture and you look through a much wider lens at what else you could do beyond the credit cards and kind of looking through and sifting and finding best of. What then was your next move? Right. So the same problem that existed in credit cards existed everywhere. So I'll try to describe the problem. You've got a bunch of consumers. You've got a bunch of credit cards. And then you've got people in the middle marketing those credit cards. So what is their incentive? Um, do they want to help you figure out the best credit card or do they want to make as much money as possible? And so this is kind of the financial intermediary problem where um, consumers have learned not really to trust bankers, brokers, and advisors because they're often getting steered towards high commission products rather than the best products. Um, and so, yeah, the thesis 
uh, that we've always had is treat people right. Um, and in, instead of just helping them with one narrow thing, like a mortgage or a, an insurance policy, help them with everything, but leverage that brand trust across multiple different products. And maybe people will start coming back over and over again. Uh, so that's kind of at the root of what we've built over time. And how do you monetize that? I mean, you want money in exchange for all of this work that you're doing. That's right. Um, so uh, banks and insurance companies spend about $25 billion a year on marketing digitally, uh, probably about that much on you know things like direct mail and building out bank branches and things like that. Um, so there's a, there's a big advertising budget out there. So we work with um, banks and insurance companies and people like that as a matchmaker to find them the right consumers. And so it ends up being a win-win. I mean, if the consumer really understands this is the best product, um, I've, I've vetted all the options out there and this is the one they tend to stick around longer. They tend to use the product more and they end up becoming a great customer for the bank. And can I just say, uh, Google falls into that as well, because lately when I Google something to try and figure it out, now I'm looking at it with a much more critical eye thinking, did an advertiser or a company pay more to get up at the top? And they aren't really the best options. So NerdWallet to me is almost a, a much more honest, can I say, assessment or clean assessment? Yeah, that's that's exactly how we think about it. Um, you've got maybe four ads at the top of every Google search. Uh, they go to the highest bidder. And then usually you have NerdWallet right after that with the you know top unpaid spot. Um, and you know we, we don't pay for that traffic so we can be very responsible in terms of how we make recommendations. Um, you know, we, we're not running on a treadmill of having to monetize the bejesus out of people so that we can go bid on that top spot. Um, so that's kind of one of the unfortunate side effects that the Google economy has created over time. Yeah, I get it. And and we know the regulators are now hovering and, and more than that, they're shooting directly at these companies that, that uh, along with Google are, are certainly in question. But that's for another day. I I guess when we talk about your entrepreneurial climb, in building Nerd Wallet, what stumbling blocks did you overcome? We're all about that challenge that that people face at a certain point where things seem to be going swimmingly, and suddenly you're grabbed by the shark from underneath the water. Yeah, it's been wow. It's been quite a journey. Um, my my personal journey is reflected in the company's journey. Um, you know, I guess we all start off having our blind spots, right? We're Maybe we get certain things and we don't get other things. And um, I think over time, you just end up getting a lot of feedback or negative 360 reviews or just seeing that some decisions you made turned out really poorly and then you learn not to do them again. So, wow, I've had quite a series of those. I'm sure every entrepreneur has. Um, You know, I think the biggest, the highest leverage mistakes you make as an entrepreneur tend to be the people you hire and, um, task with certain jobs. I think everyone's great at different types of things, um, but being able to figure out who will be great at which point in a company's life cycle, at which job, that takes some experience. So, Jack Welch yeah. used to say that of General Electric, that he'd hire somebody, think they were amazing, and then they would really disappoint him in a certain position. But he'd say to himself, wait a minute, wait a minute, maybe I just need to change by a couple of degrees and shift that person into another position, and then they will become 
really valuable and the synapsing will connect and you'll have a eureka moment with that individual. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. And, you know, by the way, everything is the CEO's fault because the CEO ultimately can decide what the team looks like. Um, you know, I've, I've made the mistake, for example, when we were too early of bringing in someone who's really great at running and scaling larger companies and vice versa. You bring in someone who's too early stage for a scale up project, they're not going to be a great fit. Um, you know, I, so, so I, I think you gain experience over time and you humble yourself and you, you learn not to make the same mistakes as badly the next time around. You went to Stanford, my rival, I went to UC Berkeley, uh, but what did you major in and was that truly your passion? Yeah, well, I, so I majored in economics and I minored in computer science. Uh, I was the first person in my family not to major in computer science. <laughs> I felt I, I realized it required intelligence and discipline that I just didn't have as a 18 year old. Um, <laughs> so I, I guess, yeah, you probably make decisions a little differently when you're the kid of immigrants, right? Um, I think it it's very much focused on what is my risk adjusted probability of finding a job afterwards and you know my my expectations in hindsight were actually quite low in terms of uh you know what I wanted to achieve career wise I mean you grow up observing um you know hard working parents um maybe not the greatest with language and maybe didn't have the the biggest careers as a result and you say gosh if I could just do a little bit better than that that'd be fantastic right so um, yeah, I'd, I'd heard there were a lot of job opportunities for economics majors and computer science majors, so kind of went and tried to split the baby. Um, over time, I really gravitated towards economics. I just, I, I love some of the principles behind it. It's almost like the physics of how humans behave with each other. Uh, yeah. And so um, I, I think a lot of that applied ultimately to NerdWallet. Well, your your parents must have been thrilled when you landed an investment banking job, uh, but then Describe the moment you lost that job. You were let go. Yeah. Well, so my, my parents um, didn't know the difference between being a bank teller and an investment banker. So they were not thrilled with the job. They said that sounds, <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they said it sounds very economically sensitive. Um, and, and they were right, you know, um, gosh, like my, one of the biggest gut punch moments in my life was getting fired from my job. Uh, you spend your whole life striving academically and trying to build up a career. And then you get let go during um, an economic downturn and no one is hiring, right? For one year or two years after well, the this was 2008. I mean, this was Lehman imploding, uh, Bear Stearns, a disaster, the financial crisis, the housing implosion. Right. I think, I, I mean, obviously in hindsight, um, having those handcuffs removed and being able to pursue other things, greatest thing that's ever happened to me. At the time, I was uh, very angry. I think I left a lot of perspective on uh, where I could have done better in my job, um, what I would have done if I were, you know, I, I would have made the same decision if I were, uh, you know, in, in my boss's position. So I think you gain perspective on those things over time. Um, I think, uh, yeah. So I, you know, when one door closes, another door opens. Uh, so spent a lot of time after that reflecting on what I could do. And in hindsight, um, picked up a lot of great skills as well. Um, having worked as a technology investor for, 
you know, five years. Um, I'd seen many examples of companies that went on to be very dominant and many examples of companies that went on to go out of business in technology. It happens yeah. so fast, right? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of those things actually influenced a lot of the strategic decisions uh, I, I made and still make today at Nerdball. Well, I always think about Palm Pilot. You know, Palm Pilot owned it, right? They owned the PDA. Everybody thought that was the coolest thing. And then came BlackBerry. And right. BlackBerry had 70 plus percent market share. We all lived by it. Remember Al Gore was using one. And I was one of the um, beta testers at CNBC when I was an anchor there. They came to me and they said, we're picking three of you to try this thing out. And I was hooked completely. I think I went through five different iterations of Blackberries. And then the iPhone came along. Right. So there's always someone, something hovering that's better, faster, stickier, and you got to be really careful. But, you know, there you are saying to yourself, at least I would, wait a minute, I went to Stanford. I had an investment banking job and, and here I am. How is that? How did I find myself in this position? But yet you pursued and you came up with this idea for Nerd Wallet. But I want our listeners to know that you didn't make a profit for three years. Yeah, that's right. Um, I was living in New York at the time, not the cheapest place to live uh, mm -hmm. when, you're, when you have no money coming in. Um, so it was an extremely stressful time. I think um, entrepreneurs, I often get this question from entrepreneurs. It's like, how long did it take? How did you know it was going to work? And I'd say, you know, much like an investor, an entrepreneur extrapolates, right? So you look at the, you look at the information coming in, you know, are people returning my phone calls? Is traffic going up on my website? And then uh, what are the risks of things that could happen? And you, you extrapolate out a couple of months, maybe even a couple of quarters, a couple of years. And you say, Hey, this is just work. This is going to work if these three things play out and gosh, it looks like they're going to happen. Right? So I think you, you have that visibility well in advance of actually uh, earning a profit or being able to pay yourself. Um, so that's a big part of what kept feeling. Early on in the company's history, one of your main objectives and, and I guess biggest challenges, right, was getting journalists, financial reporters, everybody to respect you guys and for, you know, press relations to notice your company. Today, we're always checking everything that NerdWallet puts out. But what did you learn? Any any crucially important lessons about marketing and pursuing media? Yeah, I, actually, yes. I mean, first and foremost, uh, you know, being a, a first a investment banking sell-side analyst and then a, you know, investor at a hedge fund um, really helped me understand um, how to analyze data and talk about it. Um, but, you know, with uh, with approaching the media, I think it's just like building a product for a consumer. You got to think about the media is uh, being a product your company's offering as well, right? Um, what what is their job? What what do they need to do to deliver on their day to day? Mm -hmm. um, how can you make it easier for them? Um, what's going to cost them to trust you or not trust you over time? And so we we really tried to optimize for you know, being reliable, being responsive, um, being on the news cycle, uh, having a team of credible uh, nerds, as we call them, who came from the media industry, uh, who, who understand exactly what we needed. So, yeah, it's a big part of it. We're not done yet. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List. 
your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you, it's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. And also going from founder to CEO. That is always very interesting when it comes to that, that path, because they say that pioneers are different from settlers, right? They have different skill sets. And often what you see, certainly in Silicon Valley, is that the, the original brainiac of the company really ends up getting pushed out because they're not great operators. What have you learned to make sure that you still get to be that guy? Yeah, I, I feel a deep sense of responsibility to push myself hard. I mean, you you definitely see every one of your mistakes when you're learning how to be an operator, for example, magnified a thousand times. It has real negative consequences on your employees, uh, you know, day to day, their financial outcomes, et cetera. So, um, yeah, I, I'd say it's been a learning process. Uh, people can do it, but um, humility and the ability to uh, retrospective things that didn't go well and then make improvements is critical. And I think the easiest analogy for me to use is, you know, you start off playing basketball one-on-one, -on -one. eventually you play five-on-five, and then you become the basketball coach, and then the GM. Your job fundamentally changes every step of the way, right? I mean, at first, you, you got to be able to jump and shoot and run. That kind of becomes irrelevant when your job evolves into, you know, being the coach, putting the right players on the the court, motivating them, making sure they pass the ball. It's mm. a completely different set of skills, right? Yeah. And then eventually um, picking the right coach, picking the right um, equipment managers, et cetera, as a GM, drafting the right players. So I think it's just, um, yeah, zooming out is just really staying at 10,000 feet, understanding what your job is, seeing when it evolves, and going and learning from the best when it does evolve, trying to get six months ahead of that at any given point in time. Speaking of learning from the best, is there somebody out there whose management and leadership style you, you try to emulate, whom you totally respect sort of at the apex of that's the one? Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think I really uh, respect bits and pieces from a lot of different people. Um, maybe a few obvious call outs. I, I've had a picture of Jeff uh, Bezos on my wall for a long time, uh, probably for 10 years. Um, they are an amazingly large organization yet they still manage to move with speed and uh, try new things and they're not afraid to fail. 
that gets incredibly hard in a large organization. So a lot to be um, dissected about how they do that so well, uh, I think a lot of people can learn from. And then, yeah, in terms of in terms of culture, I mean, I think um, a lot of companies in Silicon Valley are evolving towards just extreme candor, um, extreme, uh, yeah, I mean, just being super transparent with each other, um, trying to talk actively about things that aren't going well, but doing it in a supportive way and being inclusive for a very diverse group of people. I think a lot of companies are doing it well, and it's having a lot of impact on productivity and outcomes. Well, when, when startups begin, the last thing they're thinking about is an HR department. I mean, you were two employees, right? Jake Gibson, your, your co-founder and best man at your wedding, correct? correct? When did you start scaling up and saying, okay, we need to hire at least another person? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, the, the funny thing about um, being an early stage startup is you're, you're just trying to survive. And um, by definition, a lot of things are just there's a bunch of little fires burning that you just don't put out because there's just so much to do. Right. Um, so we, we went until we were maybe 40, 50 people um, before we ended up hiring a lot of the functions you would traditionally think of, uh, you know, HR recruiting, et cetera, you know, for a very long time, Jake and I were um, hiring off Craigslist. I'm not sure we were doing payroll the right way. Um, we we're just, we we're just winging it, but that's, that's super common. That's super common across small business in America. Um, yeah. So I, I, I think, uh, I think the best advice for most entrepreneurs is that it's, it's messy for everyone. You can fix it later, but just make sure you survive till the next year. So focus on the things that matter the most. Yeah. Surviving all the failures, I would imagine. Uh, you now are focusing at NerdWallet a lot on millennials. Um, they're looking for mortgages. They want information on Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, things like that. What do you find is changing about the millennial population these days as we've been stuck in a pandemic, many of them I would imagine have lost their jobs. Yeah, I'd say, I'd say millennials are, they're used to, they're used to transparency. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm on the very old end of still technically being a millennial, but to me, the notion that, you know, you have reviews and ratings on professors is shocking. That just didn't happen when I was in school. Right. But now, you know, it doesn't matter like what product you're consuming. You just kind of have that level of expectation. So we're definitely seeing a lot of, uh, you know, research behavior around any, any potential products that they're getting. Um, they're mixing and matching the best products. You know, back in the day, you used to just get everything from the bank around the corner, from your mortgage to your checking account, to your savings account. You didn't really question the rates they were paying you. Now it's like go online and create your own bundle um, from the mix and match between the best online lenders, right? So, so those are those are pretty big differences in behavior. I think millennials are also just getting more savvy around um, around when to change products. I mean, I think you know probably 20, 30 years ago, people would get a credit card and use it their whole lives, or get a savings account and use it their whole lives. Now we're seeing quite a lot of shopping behavior. What do you make of um, Robinhood? Yeah, I mean, um, well, Robinhood is uh, taking a lot of friction out of getting into the equity markets with a lot less money. So I, I, I reserve value judgments on whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, now with four hundred dollars, you can go and buy partial, fractional shares of stocks. You can 
use margin. Um, you can buy crypto and trade options. I, I think it's definitely making at least the the casino of the equities markets very accessible yeah. to a lot of people. Well, it, it, we've seen the markets uh, hit record after record almost every day this week uh, alone. And, and last week, I mean, we're, we are looking at, what, what did I have here? Um, the Dow, it's 11th record of the year. S&P, 32nd record. Uh, NASDAQ, 50th. You know, I mean, it just goes on and on. But there is a difference between the market and the economy. The markets are doing beautifully. The economy is not. What are you seeing at NerdWallet on that front? Yeah, we see a very um, K-shaped recovery, right? Um, people who are doing well are doing really well. People who aren't doing well aren't doing so well. Um, and yeah, so much of the economy is tied to, you know, call it consumption from the people with a lot of disposable resources. So um, overall, I, I think the market is kind of factoring that in. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it speaks to a lot of what's going on out there. Um, and we see it in behaviors, right? Like we see, you know, record numbers of people um, refinancing their homes, shopping for new homes, but, you know, we, we, we don't see the people who are left behind. Um, they're not, they're not coming to us as much. They're on the food bank line. It's horrible. It's absolutely uh, horrible, which I don't know, leads to that existential question about the wealth gap that I don't know how to solve, but there are the haves who have everything and a Mm -hmm. huge empty void. And then the have nots. That's right. And I don't know, we don't want to be a South American banana Republic where you know, you have a very small percentage of wealthy people and a large percentage of poor people. That's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think um, I have a lot of appreciation for America and what it stands for. I mean, I, you know, some of the most uh, appreciative and patriotic people I meet are first generation immigrants, right? It's like, I mean, even we we like to talk about how government institutions don't work, but gosh, if you if you moved here and you know, you work for an organization like NOAA after having been able to been given the privilege of going to a college, um, you know, your, your perspective is just different, right? So uh, we have something good going on here. I think it, yeah, a lot of it gets put at risk if there's, if, if people don't feel like there's a fair shot of, uh, of making it. And NerdWallet helps people get a fairer shot by giving them that information. How big is the company today? How many employees? Yeah, we're we're at six hundred employees, and you know, growing. Um, yeah, we're we're profitable. We're reaching over a hundred million Americans, and we just expanded into the UK and expanded into small business as well. So, a uh, long road ahead of us. What's next for Nerd Wallet? Yeah, we're you know we want to help more people in more ways. So um, you know, I think there's still a lot to be done to make insurance uh, more transparent and easier to navigate for consumers. I think there's more to be done on lending. Getting a mortgage is still incredibly complex. Uh, I definitely see a future where we've got your back and you don't really have to think much about it. And we'll just nudge you whenever you should do something smart with your money. Yeah, a great idea. Tim, what do your parents think of your work today? They were skeptical back then, of course, and and they are immigrants from uh, from Taiwan. Yeah, Taiwan? I mean they're, um, yeah, I, I don't know. They 
you know, <laughs> maybe it's a cultural thing. We don't talk a ton about um, that kind of thing. Um, you, you don't hear a ton of like, I'm proud of you, but I'm, I'm sure they are. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think they're, yeah, they're excited that I have some stability in my life financially. So, I mean, I think that's really what, that's every immigrant's dream, right? Every immigrant's dream for their family. Yeah. And, and by the way, the dream of America creates jobs. Look at how many jobs you, the son of immigrants, have created. And, um, you know, I'm just, I'm just glad, hopefully, the tone of that anti-immigrant discussion over the past four years will either be completely sounded out or at least uh, quieted, because I think that's been really detrimental to the growth of this country. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a super political person. I, I think, you know, anywhere there's fewer concerns, there are underlying things we need to think about as a society. Like, how do we, yeah, how do we make sure there's equal economic opportunity that people can get great jobs? I, I do think that's the root cause of some of this rhetoric, but something, something challenging to solve. Well, let's end on a on an interesting and, and happier note. The name Nerd Wallet. You know, you talk a little <laughs> bit about it, but what was the genesis of that? Well, when you when you have no money, you take which domain is available, right? So that's definitely part of it. But yeah, I mean, it it came from the idea of like let's let's uh, let's help people in a more quantitative, transparent way. Uh, you know, I when I think of a banker, I don't really think of a nerd. Um, maybe that's becoming more true these days. But uh, yeah, so we 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 just wanted to do something different and uh, really be more about the numbers. What if somebody wanted to buy your company? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not really top of mind for, for us right now. We've got such a big runway ahead of us. I mean, I think we're, we're truly building a brand that hopefully will be much bigger in 10 or 20 years than it is today. So not, not super interested right now. Well, we really appreciate what NerdWallet does because it is an unconflicted, right? Unconflicted, clear eyed assessment of all things financial. And I encourage everybody who, to go on it, you know, whether it's a credit card you're looking for, you need to understand what type of investment you should make or a mortgage, Nerd Wallet is there, which I think is very cool, not nerdy at all. Thanks so much for joining us, Tim. All right. Thanks for having me, Liz. Anytime. And uh, listen, I hope you'll have me in your home every single day, Monday through Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Fox Business Network, because we would like to be a piece of that puzzle when it comes to solving your financial questions. So we'll see you then and have a great holiday season. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table to Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts.